Tapes is supported by Horrified, the website that celebrates and champions British horror, covering films, television, books, fiction and more. You can visit Horrified at horrifiedmagazine.co.uk and find them on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at horrifiedmag. The Tapes is part of the Pod Dojo Network. I'm Rob Parker, and I'm the author of Blackstoke, which has been described as a sort of a a suburban gothic horror thriller. Unofficially, it's my 10th or 11th, possibly even 12th, for reasons which I'll explain shortly. But I had always written in the crime genre. Um, Genre's a funny one. We always talk about whether it's a a, a hindrance, or a help and, and I'm not sure where I stand on this one but this one was definitely a step a sideways step for me I'd never written horror before so I didn't know how it was going to be received but it was definitely an occasion where my usual crime writing took a darker turn and I went with it I leaned fully into it and things got darker and darker and then unbeknownst almost to myself my influences when from when I was younger in terms of film books and TV completely took over and I wanted to just follow them and I had a riot this was probably one of the most fun experiences I've had writing a book um as I say this is my yeah eighth or ninth novel and I started writing seriously when I was oh it's 2012 so that was when I was 29 I'd always written um I've got um Piles of screenplays that are absolutely appalling. Um, a lot of them featuring Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, sometimes fighting dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> but I was definitely of the school of I wanted to write and have fun while I was doing it. I wanted to enjoy what I was writing. And who wouldn't like to read about JCVD fighting dinosaurs? And I always wanted to be an author. Uh, my grandfather had a huge bookshelf. Um, and he had a brilliant catalogue of VHS that VHS cassettes that he'd recorded from television but he'd done that thing where you know sometimes you'd get a uh, a little sticker book thing that came with it with little letters and numbers and he made up his own sort of filing cataloguing system that I couldn't fathom but he'd he'd put he'd done like a little (laughs) a bible for it a little guide so I could find things like Dr. No and From Russia With Love (laughs) and all that stuff but he also had stuff like Valley of the Guanji and Star Wars and that kind of stuff um was like fodder for me um and yeah his bookshelf was just full of iconic pulp books and crime thrillers crime books loads of stuff like that and um, a few, because he was a Reader's Digest fan as well, as I recall, and he had lots and lots of sort of factual books that he would get on an offer or whatever, and one of them was called Mysteries of the Unexplained, and when no one was watching, I would run upstairs and, and open it up and read it and terrify the living daylights out of me, and it was that book that had those pictures of cigar-shaped grainy UFOs, and that half a leg that had been spontaneously combusted, or the rest, the rest of the person had spontaneously <laughs> combusted, and I would read it between sort of like half eight, uh, you know, eight and half eight before we had to go home from their house after Sunday tea on a Sunday night, and absolutely pap myself on the way <laughs> and get home terrified and then never sleep. I think, but so stories and having a heightened imagination is um, is a weird one. In fact, my first memory I think is not 
a like a cognitive conscious one i think it's a dream of being of, of flying over a hedge <laughs> <laughs> a wooden owl flying over a hedge with me in its claws. I got, it's the most stupid thing, um, but it's so vivid. <laughs> um, and uh, movies, you know, King Kong, watching King Kong at a young age really, really stuck with me. But the one that lives with me the most is E.T. My dad came home one day and he said, um, we're going to watch E.T. tonight. I've got it from the video shop. So I was born in 83, E.T. coming out in 82. Um, he respectfully waited until I was three. Um, till I watched it and um, I was so up for it I thought it was gonna be amazing I had images in my head of like a jeep driving across the desert and like a gorilla called E.T. hanging out the back reaching for a child you know in a really friendly way they're going on some mad adventure I wasn't ready for the squat poo man in the woods <laughs> I was not ready for any of that and and that atmosphere and and it, it set off from the age of two to three I can't remember exactly what two or three um Night terrors till I was 14, 15. I, I was just absolutely destroyed by E.T. <laughs> but it meant that my, my imagination was so fertile. And so I would always write stories then. And it, the thing with E.T. as well was, and the alien phenomena was, wow, that... that <laughs> I, used to, I, I hate it and it makes my guts go, but I want more of it. Um, so you can imagine in 93 when X-Files came around, I was absolutely all over that. And it remains one of the most formative influences, I think, to me, uh, there is going. Not just because it was about incredible, unexplained stuff, but because of storytelling, the style, the characters. Oh, I just loved everything about that show. But I kept writing throughout all this time. I was the kind of kid who used to go to on holiday and I would go to the corner shop on the first day and get a notebook and try to fill it. Um, I, I'd always say I'll write a novel while I'm on, on holiday. You know, you never do. Never. <laughs> but the the intentions were always there. But I was always reading them. Always, always reading as well. But life sort of got in the way a bit. I, I went to... I asked at school whether I could go to film school um, and write for film and TV. And, and they told us, no, you can't go and do that. Because it, it didn't look great on the, you know, the output forms. Like, what our yeah. students go on to do. Yeah, so I was convinced that law was the right thing to do. And I went and did three years of law, which I only have one regret about. It's not doing it. It's not applying myself to it. Um, it's the one regret I've got. I think it's the only regret I've got in life, actually. I don't have any other regrets, I think. So, yeah, that was very, very interesting. But I spent that whole time... <laughs> making films and writing films and writing stories and stuff while I was there when I was supposed to be studying and mm. I was given the opportunity to do a dissertation and I did it you know about law and I did it about the criminal justice system in 12 angry men and out for justice with the <laughs> Seagal you know it's <laughs> uh, <laughs> <very> contrasting films <laughs> yeah. contrasting takes on the, on justice so yeah but no, I had, a, I had a good time. And, but going to, actually going to film school after that, I did three years of film school after that, was mind-blowing for me. That's where I met my friends, uh, Simon and James, on the, on the For Your Reconsideration um, podcast. And we've been, you know, firm friends ever since. And it's just, um, it was great. You know, when you meet, meet like-minded people who are sort of into the same kind of thing, you are, I just loved it. Um, and I used that opportunity to do, I acted quite a lot in, you know, like short films and on stage and stuff. I was Romeo in Romeo and Juliet because I'd gone in to be, um, to read, you know, I didn't want to act in it, 
but they didn't have anyone to read the part of Romeo in the auditions for the Juliets. So I read with 50 Juliets and then they asked me whether I would stick around and be in the thing. <laughs> so, I, you know, I said, OK, that's fine. That, I, I wanted to know what it was like to be directed um, and to interpret story. And it's all storytelling. Everything is storytelling, you know. Um, I, I'm in love with the idea of storytelling and I always have been. Um, I think stories are transcendent between whatever position our culture is it's right the way through history story is a transcendent mode of communication and it's how we learn you know and i just i love it i think there's nothing more powerful than creating stories it doesn't matter how you go about it i really enjoyed it and i wrote a couple of plays myself which i put on and um we were a regular feature at the lantern theater in sheffield for a while all this while i'm writing you know appalling film scripts i think around this time is when i first started writing a bond film as well um the crisis for the coldest heart which um, I'm now going cold on that title, actually. But um, it's only taken 15 years. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just kept writing. Um, and I had all sorts of uh, sort of wild jobs, not wild jobs, but mad jobs in this time. Um, I was a warehouse picker, a barman. Um, I worked uh, as a delivery driver for a pharmaceutical company. I used to deliver prescriptions and medications to people. I used to had like a white man, white van guy who used to clean out properties and clean out like um, oh anything that needed cleaning out it was horrendous. I used to get in all sorts of scrapes doing that. But all of this was like is stories, <laughs> you know. Like one day, like I dropped a box in a pharmacy attic, and um, this cloud of like went up into my face and nose and um like the my skin the pores in my skin all started going royal blue when i had to go to hospital <laughs> and like it's all just it's all just you know great stuff to add to living a, a nice full life that gives you a lot to write about so i'm i'm the kind of person that says yes to as many things as i can this comes back from then is that if you will give me a, an opportunity to do something even if I don't really want to do it, I'll say yes, because I'll always have, it's always something I'll grow from or grow with. Mm -hmm. So um, I said yes to a lot of things. One of the things was, um, I know a friend of the, the podcast, Tom Pickup, he said to me, would you like to do some legal advocacy work? And I said yes, because I'd done six years of university and it was going to really help the financial situation. <laughs> and it was amazing and it was like you know you like you, i feel like you learn a lot about people when they're under duress and being when you're in court there is no fewer places where people are under that kind of strain mentally and i met so many characters doing this and it just lived with me you know it was like a character workshop every single day and i learned so much and then i started playing football um again since i was a young man and I got injured playing football. My um, I needed six knee surgeries, three on one leg, three on the other. And um, I was out of work for 18 months. Um, and I was at home and Jeremy Kyle was still on the air and it was awful. <laughs> you know, just sitting at home all day, every day, watching just mm -hmm. rot. And I've got no shame in telling anybody I really struggled during that period. I felt like the spiral you know, downward spiral. I was just sitting on this sofa for 18 months and it still was a long time. I was 20, yeah, 28, 29. And I didn't know what happened. And um, I'd forgotten to read during this period. I just hadn't read anything. I uh, just so wrapped up in um, the situation I was in that I didn't think about anything else. Um, and 
I picked up Jaws again to get me going, my favourite book of all time, and it just uh, pulled me straight out of it. And then I got to thinking about what I could do. It, it turned me into a silver linings guy. Like, what can I do with all this time that I've suddenly got where I'm not allowed to work? And uh, writing came along and said, well, this could be it. You can't do anything else, but you can write from where you are on that sofa. So I got my head down and, and wrote a book and it took me six weeks to write the first draft of this first book. Um, the book was called The Baby and the Brandy. It would eventually go on to be called A Wanted Man. And um, it was just heaven writing this thing, you know, from where my mental state was. So you could definitely say that writing saved me in a way, pulled me out of that. Um, and so I was still sat on the sofa, but I was I was jetting about all over the place with this soldier guy that I'd created and causing trouble and banging heads and everything like that. And I know a lot of my friends think that it was me acting out fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, someone said, "Is this is this just you if you had the balls?" Basically, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and um, no, I think it's me turned up to maybe fifteen is what it is actually. Um, but. Um, now, that said, uh, I then didn't know that you could uh, self-publish direct to Kindle at the time. And once I worked that out, as soon as I pressed the end, I uploaded the Word document to Kindle, mocked a cover up really quickly, and it was there. And um, we got a couple of sales, and I just couldn't believe it. it was that. Like, oh, my word, you've written a book, and now people are reading it. And it was a shambles, this book. I mean, it was just so full of... I've got a, a, I printed off one of the old copies that is up there of... Um, of what it was like just to remind me of just how rough it was and I thought it was fine you know <laughs> this is no problem you guys can enjoy this and it was you know I loved the whole process and I loved it when readers got back in touch and most of them said you know some some quite rightly said it was garbage others said um you know we really like <laughs> really like whatever this is <laughs> we like what you've done it we don't quite know you know, uh, so it made me want to write a second, which I did very quickly after that. So um, I got these two books and I decided to try and get a, an agent, a literary agent, because by that point I decided this is the shot. This is the one shot to make this work. Let's go and make this work as, as best we possibly can. So, yeah, I started off by approaching 250 agents around the world. Um, so I made like a hit list and um, approached them all and I got uh, 250 rejections. So I got... Um, uh, 200 didn't actually reply um, and I still get the odd driven drab now of response <laughs> seven eight years later sorry Rob this isn't for us <laughs> found it round <laughs> yeah what were you doing radiator, it? Like. Yeah, it's just so ridiculous um, 40 were you know quite nice thanks but no thanks um, and 10 were just awful like um, you've got no original voice there's nothing to you you can't write don't waste our time again. That's the phrase that sits in my head most is don't waste our time again. And when you think about time, I mean, six books, six weeks, sorry, is an absurd amount of time really to write a book, uh, you know, and it was, it was only because I had nothing else on and I was sort of hell bent at that point. But to denigrate someone's effort like that, yeah. I thought was amazing, you know, and it could have gone one of two ways. It could have made me think, yeah. Woo, we had our shot. That's it. Thanks very much. Bye bye. Writing's not for me. Whereas it made me think, oh, I, you're only making me stronger. You're only m making me want to beat you. Um, and that's still a thing now. I absolutely love bad reviews now. I just love it. You know, they just, honestly, they make me smile so much that if you're going to take that time out of your own day to go and vent at someone who spent so much time creating something in the hope of your enjoyment, 
I just think it's hilarious. I love it. Um, so uh, now it, every single negative became a log for the fire. I worked more, polished the book more, sent out to more agents. That's 250s when I stopped counting, by the way. I didn't count again after that. I just knew that was in my first trench that went out. And um, uh, I got picked up by an agent in New York and it was great. Uh, she showed real faith in me. She was actually sort of my second agent. The first agent wanted, this is interesting, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but the, f the first agent promised the moon on a stick, like he wants, uh, you know, uh, he promised film deals and all sorts of stuff, and he never followed through with it. So we had to part ways, and this was the one, and he threw some legal jargon at me, and this was the one time that law degree really came through for me, because I was able to repel it quite comfortably, yeah. But... Um, so he let me go and I found this, yeah, this other New York agent. It all came together quite quickly, all that. And, and she was great and she helped me rewrite that book. Uh, it was 46 times, that first one. 46 separate drafts to get it to um, a publishable standard. And that was in 2017. Since then, um, I've bought out other ones sort of every six months and on average. And I've been lucky enough to be invited into schools everywhere to talk about creative writing because I absolutely love that. I think when, you, when you're younger and you're into books and stories, the world just feels so open to you and so exciting and books can just be so enthralling. And ghostwriting came along as well. Um, I, if I wanted to make a living at this, you know, it's very rare that the first book that you release turns into a bestseller overnight and that was definitely the case with me you know it took it's taken years to get uh, seriously since then years to get any kind of momentum and following behind any of my work but fortunately they've done well enough to keep me being published and to let me do it full time but what's really helped me do it full time as well is the ghost writing so I've, I've ghost written a few books now for soldiers and politicians and journos and um uh, that has also been absolutely fascinating because they're all stories and what I realised really was I'm not bothered about my name being on the front it's more about the story inside and how it makes you feel and whether we did a good job of telling it but that's sort of like a potted history of where we are today with Blackstoke coming out yesterday <laughs> primarily a, a, a crime right how did horror come into this you know obviously you mentioned the influences things like x-files so that was always part yeah. of your kind of life it was it just yeah. a case of now i get to just let rip and see where it goes no it was never a conscious decision it was more that right i've got an idea for a mystery and i love suburbia you know, the the sort of, and I don't think, you know, we, we're all very familiar with the sort of American take on suburbia, but the, the, the sort of the feeling of suburbia, I think is um, transposable over here as well. I love the idea of creating a little tight knit area where action is confined because I think it boils down the drama. Mm -hmm. So I always like that, like small towns, small settings like the Blackstoke estate. I love that kind of stuff. Um, because it makes people, it, just by being the way it is, it generates friction and drama and the people rubbing up against each other just by proximity. And I've always enjoyed that very much. So I thought, well, if we create that and that there's a dark undertone here, and there was, there's definitely a few influential films and movies um, that have, have added to this because I really like the idea of areas having secrets. I like that. I like myths. 
attached to areas. I spent a lot of time in the Norfolk Broads and I love that that place has such mythology. Everywhere you look, that place has got a story. Whether it's like <laughs> a sheep's head in a pub that just won't go away. <laughs> or, you know, or the, the, the ruined windmills and abbeys as you go along the river itself. I just, everywhere you look, there's an old folk's tale there, you know. So I, I love all that kind of stuff. And I thought, let's, if I create this setting, and I had no real idea what I was going to do. The thing with Blackstoke was I wrote the first um, half maybe three or four years ago. And then I thought, I've got this. I mean, it's quite a lot of work. What shall I do with it? And I sort of let it percolate for ages. And then I thought, oh, I really know where we can go now. Um, so I just I sent it to the publishers at Red Dog Press um, because I, I've always admired what they did. And I really wanted to work with them. And there was no one else who saw this manuscript. It was just them. And they read that first half and said, yes, let's do it. But can you get it ready by March? And this was in um, late October last year because they had a slot in March that could go. And I thought, right, we've got to do it. And it meant that I had to get it done by uh, mid-December. So it was a quick turnaround. of, And it was just really like, right, let's just turn the tap open and let it all fall out. Let's just let everything you've ever wanted to happen fall out and see where we go here. Um, and it was because it was with a, a new publisher. I felt like I wasn't sort of attached to a particular genre. I felt like I could just go for it. And I didn't know how far it was going to go in my own sort of head and mind. Was that the um, shortest? But yeah, I just let the influence like go. Time scale that you've been given to to write a novel. And did that affect your your kind of process? Um, that's such a good question. Usually, I, I've never really had too many deadlines because I self-impose a lot of deadlines. Like, um, I want to finish by this point so then I can do this bit, then this bit. Because I like to have three drafts done before the publisher sees it. Because it means that after that point, it's a lot more plainer sailing. You're dealing with a much more polished manuscript and the edit can be quicker when you're editing with them. I don't know. I think the quickest I've ever written, I think, was still that first book at six weeks. I think if you were to add all this all this out, I mean, obviously, you've got the big gap in the middle. But I don't think that... Um, I think this is pretty normal, actually, this one. I don't think it was. it's that long. I think when it got down to it... Because I try to... When I'm writing a first draft, I'll do 2,000 words a day. And that... You know, across a week, you've got 10,000 words. So looking at it, I had about 30,000 words written of Blackstoke. And then it was like, right, well, we want to get it to about 75. So you could definitely do another month's worth of work or four more working weeks. And you're looking at having a, uh, having a manuscript that you can work with. I did that. I had it in my hand by the end of December, by the start of December, sorry. And then I spent two weeks doing those two additional drafts to get it in by 11th of December I think it was and yeah then we yeah then it was a couple of quick edits and they didn't want to you know Red Dog didn't want to change much which was a relief in a way if anything they wondered whether we could go a bit harder in certain areas mm. as well which was interesting because I'm thinking I don't know how I could do that <laughs> but um, there's always there's a will there's a way there's a limit to my imagination there I think but um, but no it was it was um it was a really nice process, this. Really nice process. Yeah. Are you a Bond fan? I mean, really a Bond fan. If you enjoy dreaming of what 1991 and 1993 Tim Dalton films would have looked like, or if you have a degree in Octopussy, but still don't know which Fabergé egg is a fake, then the Really 007 podcast is for you. Really 007. We bring an insightful, critical, 
and Silly take on the James Bond films. We are proudly part of the Pod Dojo Network and are available for free on iTunes and Spotify. We have regular, in-depth reviews of every Bond film, as well as special episodes on different aspects of the series. And some of us are a bit down on the Craig era. Robert. While others are happy to pretend to dislike things just to get cheap laughs. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and join in on the James Bond conversation online. Really, Douglas? What is it that drives you to sit down every day and get 2,000 words done? Is it character? Is it the plot? Is it just the promise of what's going to come? Like you say, turn that tap on, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, what, yeah. what sort of gets you there? Well, I, uh, there's such a good question as well, because you're making me think about how that's changed as well, because before I was full-time with it, it was very pure like that. But now, you know, now that I know that this is how the food gets on the table, it's mm-hmm. definitely a job now. So some days, you know, like um, the pulling teeth days where the words aren't coming great, yeah, it's definitely a question of, well, I'm motivated because this is my job. But certainly, I feel blessed that I get to do this. I love, I don't plan. So I've got vague planning ideas. I might do some notes here and there, but I don't, I've never been a planner. And because I love that blank page, I see a blank page and I get excited by the opportunity and the prospect of what can we put on that? What can we do next? And um, so that, I would say, is my principal motivation, I think, really. there is, And like you say, when the taps open and the words just won't stop coming and it feels really good, doesn't some might say it happens a lot when you write something of novel length, and it really doesn't, actually, at least not for me. There are times when... You know, if you in that whole process, if you have two weeks where it's really running smooth and oh, you're in the zone, I think you're doing really well. Seriously. And the rest of the time, like the middle the middle thirty thousand to fifty thousand words or twenty thousand mm-hmm. to fifty thousand is such a rampant slog at times. <laughs> you, know, cause you, you know where you want to end up. You've just mm-hmm. got to go through the motions of sort of getting yeah. there. and you ha- But you have to apply that same meticulousness to it. Um, and I would definitely say that in some of my earlier books, I've not been as meticulous as I'd, I'd liked. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, and I'd definitely um, add now at this point that I'm, I'm by no way the finished article at all. But I'm enjoying it. I'm trying hard. Mm-hmm. That's it. You know, and I keep wanting to expand and getting better. So, um, yeah, some days good, some days bad. Mm-hmm. You just take, take I mean... <laughs> I just keep smiling. That's it. I just keep yeah. smiling that I get to do it. Well, like you say, you get through those bits. It's, you kind of keep your eyes on the prize, isn't it? It's like, this is, this is really why I'm writing this. This is the payoff. Yeah, there are some days when it's like, um, like the good bit would be holding the book at the end. You know, oh, it'll be great when it's done or whatever. Um, I think probably one of the best days is when you get sent the cover in, the, in an email, you know, like, or the prospective cover, mm. what they're thinking about. And that, embodies your vision you know and that's oh wow that's the first time i've ever seen it in like a a visual art rather than just up here in my head you know so i love those days like that i think um there are definite days where um you look back at what you've done in that day and you're happy you're very happy there are days where i i be the first to say and my wife will be the first to say that i'm um i can be frustrated with it you know, like it's just not coming together the way I want. Um, and also, is uh, every writer goes through 
there it's unique to every writer sorry some find things easier some find things harder i know that danny marshall who who's on the cover of the book uh blackstoke he doesn't like writing dialogue scenes he really likes writing action scenes because he feels that it flows and that's where he feels like he can really get in the zone whereas i'm completely the other way around i like doing the chit chat and i find the action the geography of action takes quite a lot out of me you know because you have to remember all the moving parts Mm -hmm. um so yeah but i mean again these are such small problems (laughs) when you get into essentially sit at a desk and make stuff up all day so was there a series of books or you know let's say a genre or anything like that that you absolutely devoured yeah i think there's there's sort of different different parts of my life with this i think or my reading life i think before the age of 12, I think up to 10, I absolutely loved. The Famous Five and Secret Seven, mm-hmm. they were ace. And I've got some American family as well. And, and we had the Hardy Boys and Encyclopedia Brown. And I really liked those as well. And, uh, but between 10 and 12, I felt like a bit lost. Like, cause there was nothing really, I didn't really, like, really feel like there was anything for me. Mm-hmm. You know, the YA scene hadn't really exploded by that point. So I felt a bit lost, like I couldn't go and read certain things, you know, in the library or whatever. And our bus stop um, was always opposite the, uh, my high school bus stop was always opposite the library. So my mum would pick us up and we'd go in, in the library straight after. Um, and, uh, or, you know, like once a week. And it was, I used to love it. Honestly, the, the thrill I used to get, it's not the coolest thing in the world to ever admit, <laughs> but the thrill I'd get of running across the road to the library. And but the the adult books were on one side and the kids books were on the other and there was no middle ground and I didn't really I was sort of like lost um, and it was really I was at a carnival a village carnival where I picked up a copy of Jaws um, right. mum and dad gave me a quid and um, I picked up uh, as I was, it was for pick and mix and I was at the pick and mix thing and they had some charity books on the floor next to it and t- the two books were that were on the top were. Clear and Present Danger, the Tom Clancy one, um, and it had um, it had Ford on the on the front cover as well. Right, yeah, yeah, it was a movie tie-in edition, <laughs> and uh, Jaws, uh, an old '76 edition of Jaws, um, and um, I they were 25p each, so I got half and half. But I wasn't supposed to have done it. This is the naughtiest thing I've ever done, I think. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but yeah, I bought Jaws um, and read it that night, and I just couldn't get over it. At 12, I just could not get over that book at all. I still can't now. I still read a bit of it every now and then and just got, and just revel in how it made me feel like, oh my God, this is writing. This is the real um, word. Obviously, just, it just Rob, you and I have known each other for many years and we went to the same school. Perhaps not typical of you know loads of schools. That are there, but I felt that perhaps creativity and particularly something like writing a book or you know creative writing, be it screenplay, book, poetry or something like that, was not necessarily encouraged warmly, I, w- I would say. So in your experience, I mean, w- would you say that's how you felt when you were at school? And also, having been in school since, do you think that's something that has changed at all? Or, you know, when you're there, you take your opportunity to, to drive home that? Well, I mean, it's, it's very interesting, that math. Um, I mentioned it before that... Um, mm. I wanted to yeah. go and do film, but I was told I couldn't because it didn't look great on the... the I don't know what the, what the forms are, but uh, yeah. by yeah. saying, this is what our students go ahead and do, that's what I'm try- alluding to. Um, and law looked better than film studies on the thing. And it was back when, you know, 22, 23 years ago, Definitely. where yeah. 
film studies in a lot of ways was frowned upon really it was definitely seen as a mickey mouse degree and um but it was what i really wanted to do but um certainly i, I remember um all sorts of things like that like it wasn't seen i don't think as especially academic at the school and it was like art as well art was seen as more of a again it's, mm. i don't like saying it but mickey mouse you know occupation in a way you know we weren't really weren't really music on the other hand which is one of the greatest forms of artistic expression was encouraged so it, it was it was full of paradoxes like that and i think schools change with you know different regimes and times and whatever but certainly academic um pursuits were more encouraged than pure creativity that said though i was the beneficiary of um a number of teachers that really made me want to harness creativity uh, one of who i think we both had uh math um who i can't name because i really I, honestly it's been my uh, right if you're an english teacher chris and one of your students goes and writes a book and then writes <laughs> another and 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 like writes but maybe even eight or nine in my case <laughs> you'd be and and that person cites you as one of their major influences you'd you'd be receptive yeah. to that you're massively proud yeah, you'd have thought so Good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gutted. so many signed editions have been sent and uh, ignored. So uh, not ignored, wow. but you know what I mean. Like I can't. And and the school has had me back once, and I've said to them, I will come back any time, day or night, mm. to support the children and the library, etc. And they just don't call. You're encouraged to consume art. You can encouraged to read. You're encouraged to, you know, analyze yeah. and be critical of these things but you're not encouraged to actually create. And it's this you're strange so thing where it's, well, where does it come from? Someone has to create it if you're going to consume it, you know? <laughs> and, it's, and again, I think it's because the, I don't know if it's the arts, particularly in the UK, because I know other European countries are, are much more so kind of supportive because it isn't seen as a steady career. It's kind of, no, you don't want to do that because, you know, it, it's it's not very secure. You'll never get a mortgage, you know, if you want to become an actor. You know, you'll be going from job to job. A writer, who's going to publish you? You know, there's so many people who publish books. You're never going to be the next Dan Brown. You're never going to be this. You're never going to be that. And it's so disheartening yeah. because those people who have so many, and like you mentioned before about storytelling, and that can be in so many different forms and mediums, that you're stifling that and what a place to to start is to sort of to dismiss people's inner kind of drive to tell stories i just you'd be amazed at the amount of people that i talk to and kids that i talk to now who say things mm. like i used to write stories when i was little and then it went away it, it never had to go away it's mm. just it's not encouraged yeah, uh, yeah. for whatever you know like i mean um in in more sort of um less sorry less sensitive more macho times it was seen as very sensitive wasn't it you know mm -hmm. putting pen to paper on things it's just <laughs> it's mad and you're right yeah. I, i've never heard it put so, so succinctly Chris, that we're encouraged to to pour over these texts without ever thinking of how we could do that ourselves mm. and that's just uh, it's amazing and in so many ways it's entirely counterproductive but it only adds mm. to that suggestion that it's really about results it's not really about you know the bigger picture it's really about the result and, and how we can frame that i'm the patron of creating writing at a school in oldham i'm the writer in residence at a high school in warrington and I go as often as I can. Obviously, this has been a terrible year for it. But like, mm. I, I go to, as often as I can to these places because 
kids in these places don't know that you can write, don't know you are allowed to write. Um, and there is also, you know, it's not helped. Um, this is a serious tangent, but it's not really helped at all by the state of the publishing industry as well. The publishing industry is still hugely Southern centric. Um, and four weeks ago, very lucky that one of my books, A Wanted Man, did very well on the Audible chart. And that book was a nightmare to get off the ground because I shopped it around all the major publishing houses. Um, and literally one of them said, um, we love it. There's nothing wrong with it at all. We, we, we'd publish it tomorrow, except we've done one Northern book this year already. And they pump out, a you know, 100 crime books a year. You know, mm. that's not representation in mm. any kind of way. And, and it drives you mad because people don't get the North. <laughs> you know, and if you restrict people's consumption, uh, what, what hell have we got? You know, so I definitely champion Northern writing as much as I possibly can. I'm a member of the Northern Crime Syndicate, which does exactly that for cri Northern crime writers. And um, we do as much as we can to get people believing in themselves that the North can tell stories because it can. The North's amazing. It's absolutely not just geographically, but the attitude of the North. I just adore it. Uh, it will never change in me as well. You know that we have a certain way of looking at things, don't we? It's hard to embody, and also <laughs> every time you get in a car and drive five minutes, you know your accent of the accent of the local community will have changed two or three times during that time. Mm -hmm. It's just so diverse, and for it to be just dismissed. I mean, it was an audio book, far from the trick. Um, it's going to be in print later this year, but they said like uh, the the southern publishers were like, you know, so we're looking at voices here. Should we go like northern Sean B? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, well, you know, yeah, he's northern, but <laughs> you know, it's only out by about seventy miles. That's <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous, you know. So, but they were like, yeah, but that's northern, isn't it? No, anyone in the north will look at that and think you're absolutely having yeah. a laugh. So, you know, so it's, it, no, but this is, um, yeah. you've hit one of my, like, my trigger, uh, <laughs> trigger causes, I think. Or, as Tom says, the hills upon which I will die. You know, I, I will die happily on the hill um, of representing Northern writing. got into Jaws I confessed to my mum um yeah I, I read this and it was a piece of cake wasn't but <laughs> I could handle it um I went and um the next thing I picked up was Dean Koontz's The Bad Place um and that um blew me away again then I went through all Koontz's stuff at that time Dragon Tears Cold Fire um The Watchers um I just loved he is still and I think he's underappreciated, but I think when it comes to pure imaginative storytelling, he is one of the absolute Mac Daddies of the game. I just think he's amazing, and he has been for decades. Um, and, uh, yeah, that would definitely correspond to one of my main influences. Koontz is definitely... If I could get this book in anyone's hands at this point in time, I'd love to see what Koontz would make of it. What is it about horror that appeals to you is it because there's you can go anywhere you can do anything it's unlimited the only limit is your own imagination is that what appeals to you i think so i think it's that sense that there is no 
whatever you think that your limit of imagination is, the author has probably got one better on you. Mm. And he will push that limit even further and blow your mind even that little bit further. It's the lack of safety, <laughs> but in a very safe place. It's why we like slasher movies, isn't it? You're watching it, but you're in your living room. You're watching mm. someone getting horribly stalked and murdered, but you're in your living room, <laughs> you know? It's the same with, with books, you know, like, you can be lying in bed, um, just one more chapter, just one more chapter, but you're still safe, but your adrenaline is going, I think. It's, it's, it's been so interesting with this release, actually, because I'm very lucky that I have some loyal readers, and they've jumped with me to this. Mm -hmm. And I wondered how that was going to go. Like, oh my God, Rob's lost his mind. He's, because, he's revealed himself to be the sicko we always wondered he was. <laughs> <laughs> and, but what's come back is that people have loved it. Um, and I think it's because for a lot of people um, throughout the age, you know, an age bracket between 30 and we'll go so far as 60, 70, really, really have a quiet gateway love of horror. It was one of the first things that got them into reading. It seems that way. That's the amount of messages I've had this week since it came out. It's just I always was a quiet horror fan. It's what got me into reading. And this has been like a little bit of a throwback to it, even though it's not. I mean, I would never put my hand up and say that this is one of the, you know, like this is sort of um, clear cut horror. You know, there are horror moments in it and there are horror <laughs> themes, but there are also mystery themes and supernatural themes as well. And well, no, maybe not supernatural. I don't know. Spoiler alert. But um, there are some there are all sorts of themes in there that don't make this a clean horror story. But yeah i don't know i it's it's i'm so buzzing with the way it's been received mm. because i did not have any basis for how it would be accepted at all you mentioned about like some of your readers saying that they're kind of quietly horror fans do you think what appeals to, to them and, and and kind of maybe appealed to you when you first kind of picked up jaws again not an explicit all-out kind of horror fan. obviously horror yeah moment. do you think there's an mm. element of it's quite illicit you know, oh yeah yeah like quietly you know you're reading something that you know maybe you shouldn't be reading that's it that's it <laughs> and that is the allure as well isn't it and <laughs> also i have to be honest the allure as writer was there as well i'm writing something i shouldn't be writing here right. mm. notably thinking of one or two scenes in my stuff <laughs> i should not be doing that um no definitely there was a moment in um and it's funny you mentioned jaws again but i do find this is such an informative crucial text for me uh, when i think about my influences because the 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 book opens with um, the dark fish moved through the the water uh, propelled by smooth sweeps of its crescent tail something like that and then within a page you've got Chrissy Watkins puts her hand down to her knee and can feel the pulse of warmth over a nub of bone and that is I remember I just couldn't get over it just couldn't get over it at all it's the most terrifying thing I've I've heard in, read in my life mm -hmm. and it was brilliant and and then the movie I mean um, I, I loved the movie at that point that was why I picked the book up. But the, the book went one further because you can immerse yourself just that yeah. bit further. I mean, again, there's, there's stuff in the book that didn't make the movie, particularly regarding Hooper and Ellen, that um, I was not ready for either. <laughs> <laughs> this is rather rude at times. Good, goodness me. Do people do that? <laughs> Movie and novel thing, any stories, stories. I think I think 
certain stories have mediums that they're better suited for, definitely. Mm. And I'd include music in that and songs in that. But um, I love them both, and I can't really separate. I would love to go towards, uh, to, do, to be involved in film. I'd absolutely love to be involved mm -hmm. in film. Um, I could definitely, given the opportunity, see myself doing that, not in a, like, I'm capable of anything kind of thing. You know, not like that at all. More of, I could definitely see myself trying or wanting to carve out an opportunity to do that. Um, whether it be writing or directing, I don't know, because I directed quite a lot at university and I really enjoyed it. But there's a big difference between that standard and any sort mm -hmm. of, you know, uh, future standard. I've always been conscious that, and people have always said to me about my books, is that they're very visual. And I take that as a great compliment um, because... I do write it like it's a film in my head, mm. you know, right down to framing. I could storyboard all of Blackstoke right now. You know, mm. it would be horrible. <laughs> I could do it, <laughs> you know, um, and I could do that with all of them because um, I've got them all here. I, I do them all with all of them here um, mm -hmm. because that's the way you, I see things. And yeah. I hate to, hate to say it for fans of Zack Schneider's uh, Justice League, but they're all in widescreen, not 4-3 ratio yeah. as well. <laughs> Um, so yeah there is a definite um, mix between the two one of the crucial moments though that made me start writing for film was because I'd written some prose for that English teacher and mm. he eviscerated it he said you've mm. gone far too into description here and it was one of the most important moments of my writing life I think actually because mm. it, it it sort of punctured any thought that I had that I might be good at this and made me always want to try harder it was really really important that um, because before that I think I probably thought that, well, I know I can turn a phrase. I know I can write. This was when I was sort of 16 or so. Uh, so that creative writing stuff in school, I'd always found quite easy. And when he eviscerated it, it absolutely kicked me into high gear. But it also made me think that, well, if my problem is description and writing pages and pages of description, let's screenwrite for a bit where you've got a minute a page, you've got to go with brevity, you can't waste any time on that. I can, I can talk about... A red case on, you know, in prose form, I could probably do ten thousand words on it, <laughs> you know, if you gave me a chance. But in in screenplay, it's just there was a red case. That's yeah. it. That's all you got time for. Um, and it really made me focus on story more than anything else, and brought brevity to my work. Hello, crime fans. I'm Sean Coleman. I'm Chris McDonald. And I'm Rob Parker. We are crime authors. Well, I'm a publisher too. And I'm a giggling buffoon. <laughs> <laughs> we are the Blood Brothers and this is our podcast. Every week we speak to the best and brightest in the world of crime fiction. And embarrass ourselves hugely. No, that's just you. Yeah, definitely just you. Great. Coming to you from the Pod Dojo Network. And sponsored by Red Dog Press. We've got new episodes heading your way all the time. With giveaways and games. Interviews and insight. And laughter. Lots of laughter. Check us out now. On all your favourite streaming services. And give us five stars, so we can't be our own one-star superstar. The Blood Brothers Podcast, your one-stop shop for the best crime chit-chat. What is Blackstoke? Five wannabe well-to-do families move into the uh, so-called charming neighbourhood of Blackstoke, a cul-de-sac especially, called Broad Oak, which is unfinished. And things don't go to plan. And the darker forces of Blackstoke uh, come to reclaim their birthright. Might be a bit spoilerific, that one. 
no, I don't think so. That's enticing, isn't it? It's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's got the there's main something going on. Yeah, it's got the main yeah, beats because they always ask for a one-liner. You know, like, uh, yeah. like I don't know. You could, I mean, honestly, sometimes when I'm trying to think up something new, <laughs> I just sit with a little a cutouts of film titles on one side and cutouts of films <laughs> on the other. You know, and it get like horrendous yeah. mismatches, like, <laughs> like. <laughs> Aliens meets the little rascals, you know stuff like that. Like, <laughs> I'd watch that. Can we make that work? Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah well, I suppose it is. It's a very little bit derivative, but you know, the whole idea is it, oh, it's die hard on a boat. Yeah. It's die hard but, on a bus. But you, but you just works. like the initial thing you said was like, I'd watch that. Like, hell yeah, I'd watch that as well. Of course, I'd watch that. You know, <laughs> if it's Friday night, I could watch that. But then you start thinking about like, I watched. Um, was it two nights ago? I had the option of do I start yeah, the yeah. Justice League My thing again? Yeah. You know, do, do I do that or do I watch um, Tremors Seven with Michael <laughs> Michael Goss and is it Michael Gross and yeah. the, the guy John Heder who played Napoleon Dynamite? Tremors oh. Seven Shrieker Island. And it wow. was uh, like the pitch sounded like maybe it sounded bonkers, and it, it was just well, I'm watching that. <laughs> so that that won the day, I'm afraid. So pitches do mean everything now, and the strength of a short mm-hmm. pitch is the one. Yeah, it definitely mm-hmm. is the one. When it comes to sort of Blackstock, what were the the main influences? I think for sure, one of the uh, Brookside is no longer a thing, but. The inter-knee sign back and two of Brookside mm-hmm. was definitely something that was slightly in the back of my head. To go further, I watched this uh, amazing documentary about a... And this is where we'll we'll buzz into spoiler territory, possibly. Um, so if we're not at Spoiler Town yet... We are at Spoiler Town. On New Jersey, about an asylum, a mental asylum, that had been defunct. It, it had all... And it had just been left there, but no one bothered to check the miles and miles of tunnels beneath beneath the facility where homeless people were living. And mm-hmm. I just, I, I got to thinking like, what if, you know, what if, what if, what if, what if, you know? <laughs> what, you know, and it all just spiraled from there. Like, mm-hmm. who else could be down there? What else could be down there? Why could they be down there? And what if the people above, what if it wasn't a derelict hospital? What if it was something that was apparently really nice yeah. and you didn't know that stuff was there? I always love that mm-hmm. thing. You know that phrase that, um, uh, oh, you're never 10 metres from a rat. Or, oh, no, it's you're never one yeah. metre from a rat. So yeah. 10 mm. metres would be divine. <laughs> 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 but it's that, you know, like, you if you can't see it, you don't know about it and it can't harm you in a way. Mm-hmm. But in this instance, it can. It can definitely harm mm-hmm. you. Um, so those were huge. Um, the Suburbia of E.T., Again, it's it's. It, I'm sure loads of people come to that, but it's about, you know, the 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 cul-de-sac of Blackstoke backs onto fields that are unfinished and overgrown and woodland that's that's unkempt and all sorts. And that kind of stuff is just pure looking out of the back of E.T.'s house and thinking about what might be in there. Uh, you know, and again, that's not Spielberg's intention. Spielberg was posing this guy as a friend, <laughs> but I'm terrified of it. Yeah. I I can absolutely see that. I found the the, the opening to be quite. It is incredibly frightening. It's very disturbing and unsettling. You know, if you watch it from the point of view of, particularly when when you're a kid and get asked mm. to you know take the bins out and there's not street lighting or there's something oh. you know there's always the, you know the obviously fear of the dark is such a primal mm. thing, but yeah, just and just not knowing what's in in the shadows is that's that's. 
you know, that's pure horror, pure fear yeah. there. And I think your own imagination fills in a lot of the blanks as well, mm-hmm. whether you like it or not. So if you give a setting and you give the parameters, just, just make sure that you can't see all the parameters. That automatically makes the reader want to question. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's definitely definitely the plan here. There are certain things that um, I didn't fill in until the epilogue, really because I just wanted to let the let your own imaginations go mad. Yeah. Really. Um, and I did want to scare you know, there is when people say get in touch and say they lost sleep. Uh, obviously, it works. <laughs> you know, that's the, the kind. Of, I'm so sorry about your disrupted sleep pattern, but mm. again, you know, that's a great compliment. Yeah, exactly. That's the job of the author, isn't it? It is. Like, yeah, the that's artist. Isn't what it? I was trying to do here. Yeah, mm. definitely. You mentioned that publisher would at times thought maybe you could go a little bit further. Were you ever sort of worried that what what, what are people going to think of me? Oh or, yeah. Or. Are they going to think that's what I think? I suppose that's a that's a that's a perennial question for yes. any author, isn't it? A writer is. Do they is. think that's me? Of course, yeah. I've had to drop that. I had to drop that very early on because um, for the first three books, I refused to write um, a sex scene because I didn't want anyone to think that that was my views and experiences of sex. I just didn't want people to think that of me at all, or even imagine that that sort of those words had come from me um, but at the meantime I was I was writing about people getting like hammers in the head and all sorts and I'm like what's wrong here you know there's something wrong about that that needs addressing so I had to balance things out so I did write um, a sex scene for the first for the third Van Bracken book and it was edited a number of times the first time <laughs> sorry I I can't say it out loud. On it. <laughs> it was it was a oh, shambolic cool. ending to well because because he's been celibate for ten years, he didn't even manage right. it. He just ejaculated right. into his shoes. <laughs> <laughs> but my you know my ed- agent was mm, like yeah. right Rob you know you can't come on this guy because what had happened with Bracken was people he he got a readership and that people thought he was a bit of a heartthrob. You know, all the readers, yeah. you know, the lucky, I've been lucky enough to follow me, thought he was a bit of a, um, oh, God, what a, what a breath of fresh air he is. Mm-hmm. And she said, you cannot have him do that. <laughs> you know, just... <laughs> 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 uh, so it's like, well, for me, that's what the character would do because he's hopeless with mm-hmm. the opposite sex. But anyway, so, yeah, I was definitely worried about that. Then I got that out of the way in that book and then he didn't have any more... Oh, no, there was, there was some flirtation in the, in the fourth book. Um, and I don't think I've gone near sex again until this book. And, spoiler alert, and... Well, is it se- you know, it's sexual stuff? Yeah. And, um, yeah, the next, uh, the next Far From The Tree book has a sex scene in it, but it's not a standard one. Okay. So whatever I think you're about to announce your new series of... Well, right, Bigfoot. Big <laughs> <laughs> no, most people, because of my love of dinosaurs, most people think that it's going to be dinosaur erotica. But there's a guy on the internet who has cornered that market. Don't you worry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what can a man do? Maybe Bigfoot dinosaur erotica. But no, there was one... Uh, so in, in trying to find it, you know, trying to... F- <laughs> Trying to find a niche that hadn't been taken over. Um, it was Danny Marshall again sent me a picture of, uh, you know, it's like a werewolf and a woman in the in the woods and a massive dino, uh, massive alien head looking at her. And he said, the alien dogging niche is open. <laughs> 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 so, non-standard. But yeah, I think definitely with the violence, certainly I'm not so worried about that. I think it's... Mm. 
because my mum insists on reading everything that I write. And this was the one I said, mum, please don't, just don't, don't read this, mum. And she said she really wanted to. And um, I was just waiting. There's one scene in particular, I was waiting, waiting. And that's the one scene that more people get in touch with me about this week than any other. But I just, you know, and in, in, in itself, I mean, I didn't know this at the time, but this particular scene has been a brilliant advertising tool. You know, when people get in touch and said, like, and, and online and say, gosh, that scene, that kind of thing, it means, it makes the book sound unmissable, which is great, because yeah. once you've read it, cool the you moment. probably wish you'd never read it. <laughs> yeah, I don't wish I'd never read that. <laughs> but definitely there are borders to be crossed all the time as an author. And I'm more, more uncomfortable and more preoccupied now with whether I'm representing women right. Because that's, like, since having daughters, that's changed the game for me entirely, is that I have to write really strong women now. Mm-hmm. Because um, not that I was consciously not doing that beforehand, but I'm really, really sort of sensitive to that now. Mm. Because sometimes you read books that are really, really well regarded, but the women in them are subservient placeholders to the whims of the men in the book. Mm. And, and I just hate it. I absolutely hate it. Because no woman I know would behave like that. You know, I'm looking, lucky with the women that I'm surrounded by, but no woman I know would behave like that. And it just feels unrealistic and demeaning. And I don't want to read like that. And I certainly don't want to write like that. I was also very conscious with this one of um, the book's got a gay couple in it. And I wanted to make sure I represented their adoption scenario correctly and appropriately and sensitively, you know, and also I find it's a challenge, you know, as a, as a writer, you know, I enjoy the challenge. I always enjoy challenges. So I'm more, no, I'm less bothered now. I mean, after this book, the gloves are off. I can write about whatever I want and not really care what anyone thinks, I think. But those things are the ones that matter to me more now. And I'm more hung up on, hung up on than I was previously. What scares you? Oh, what an incredible question. Um, <laughs> yeah. I always have, um, like dreams that I've missed deadlines. Or, or they're usually deadlines to do with coursework at university. <laughs> Honestly, it's like once a week, like an awful dream. Like, ah, ah, yes, that's all right. I'm not at university. I've not been for 15 years. You know, that kind of thing. Um, and no, uh, what scares me? I love, I mean, I, I love to be scared by fiction. I love it. But I also love putting myself into situations that will make me float or sink. You know what I mean? Like in real life. And... I've been in a number of those. Um, so I, I box as well. Uh, math has been to a number of my fights. And that is scary. Um, and I, I didn't realise that I loved that as much as I clearly do, because I've fought five or six times now. And But I love that idea that that person is going to come across the ring with the sole intention of putting you out. And, God, that's exciting. You know, like, and how am I going to stop him from doing that? And, yeah, I, I just, I, the, the adrenaline of that moment, because I'd be the first to say and admit that you will, I will never let it on before a fight. But, you know, like, when you're squaring up to each other beforehand and whatever, and sometimes, uh, certainly in my first couple of fights, if it was someone who I thought was very good, the fear was a very real thing, like, oh, my God, he could do me, this fella. You know, that kind of thing. But, um... But, I, I, you know, I don't know, it's funny, it's, but the fear, it's, it's a transferable feeling, you know, um, of harm, I suppose. And it's, um, it's very basic, isn't it? Like fight or flight kind of stuff. Turns out I want to fight it, which is great, you know, I'm glad about that. So, but in terms of 
stuff. I mean, I'm not keen on aliens, and I'll never be keen on aliens. Oh, I'm. It might, now that you've got me thinking, it's stupid stuff. Like, I hate it when a dog is sick. <laughs> <laughs> I, hate, I hate that. It's absolutely. F- <laughs> you know when it like it, I was lying in bed a few nights ago and like literally in the corner of the room you could hear like <gasps> like no 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 <laughs> make it stop and it, no I, I don't do good with vomit I'm not great with vomit um, it's not a great answer this but I don't think there's anything sort of fiction wise I don't like but I really do not like no there is something uh, harm to children in stories mm. I cannot do it um, mm-hmm. do you do you find Sorry, yourself more scared or you enjoy it more when it's because this is something that Chris I know you've talked about on on this before and we've talked about about something that's just unsettling and gradually you know it it has that uneasy feeling that it gives you or the sort of quiet quiet bang as uh, Mark Commode would say you know for for some um, or or you know sometimes I think there can be a, a mixture of the two but yeah, I think there's room for both. I think there's room for both. And I think there's a great, I, I, I think that the treatment, um, on one hand, the horror genre, if we just take movies for the moment, the horror genre has been treated terribly by the movie industry, but at the same time, it's also done itself no favours. So um, with, you know, deliberately schlocky scripts and effects and stuff like that. But but when you're at a point now where I think the stuff that Bloomhouse has been doing has been amazing. You know, when you can combine, you know, elite level filmmaking with very, very good storytelling in a, in a terror sense. Um, I think that's fabulous. I'm not saying they get it right all the time, but I'm saying they're a good benchmark to look at. But horror, I think it, it, it evokes a response. Like you can watch an action movie and be... You know, nine times out of ten, you could possibly be just mm. like a blancmange all the way through. Just, mm. yeah, it's happening, it's happening, it's happening. It's very hard to do that with a very well-made horror film mm. because it's very difficult. It it pulls on all those primal, almost physiological quirks that we have that we don't like what we can't see. We don't like certain noise vibrations and frequencies. Um, we don't like things that play into... Uh, innate sense of mythology i think that's one of the things that exorcist did so well was that it it preyed upon everything we'd been taught was bad was happening to this little girl and it's just an absolute masterpiece that movie i think horror is a completely overlooked genre completely um and underappreciated because at night sometimes you know um there'd be so many people who say i'd much rather watch a good horror film if you've got a couple of hours spare on a Friday night or whatever, a lot of people will say, I'd like to watch a horror film because you want to be scared witless, but in a safe space. Mm. And that, again, is what we talked about before, isn't it? With reading and novels, being scared in a safe space and having those primal fears jangled and jarred, but you can just close the book or turn mm. off the telly and go to bed afterwards. So it's, it's, it's kind of drug-like, I think, actually. It gives yeah. you a real hit of adrenaline, but it's safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very much like a roller coaster ride, isn't it? It's just just enough to worry you, but not be too, you know. Absolutely. Don't know. Has there been any film or TV or books that's kept you up at night? Oh gosh, it's been quite some time. Um, I think I've been kept awake a lot by my own stuff a lot, but that's just because I find it hard to switch off. Mm. And I'm always thinking about that first line tomorrow morning. Like I'm already thinking about tomorrow morning now. What am I going to write about tomorrow morning? 
But I don't know. It's it, it used to be anything. I used to be so sensitive to this side of things, mm-hmm. and those night terrors, yeah, over ET. I mean, I was so sensitive then. Anything would tick me off and and have me awake all night. And I, I think I slept on my parents' floor till I was fifteen. I think. Um, so yeah, I used to go and stay at Matt's house, but I never told them that I I didn't, you know. And those nights, actually, I had to sleep in a bed by myself. I was terrified. Yeah. <laughs> I was terrified. It's quite an old house as so, well, wasn't it? So. Uh, honestly, Matt, the stories I have from your house. Yeah, uh, at the time I was you've there. Shared some honestly. of them, but yeah, I'd love to. Hear we could more. do a whole other yeah. tapes podcast on that, on those occasions staying in Ivy Lodge. <laughs> I, I'm a very open-minded person, um, but I'm definitely of the believe it when I see it school. And there's stuff that I experienced in Matt's old house that I can't explain. I can't. Crazy. I can't. As much as I'd like to, I can't. But yeah. Is that material for the next? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe it's... Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, because I I asked the publishers, would you have another horror, Mm. you know, on the back of this one? Um, I've been really lucky with the way it's been received. and, And you both are a big part of that, you know, with the support from yourself, Chris, with the tapes and your endorsement of the book, which has meant the world to me. Um, but that, you know, it's it's had to, it's sold out three printings now. So um, I've got to go and sign another uh, printing tomorrow, um, which is, I never expected that mm-hmm. at all, at, uh, absolutely in any way. So that if there's, I always thought that if there was market and appetite for me to write another horror, I would do. Um, so yeah, I, I think I'd like to. And I'd certainly like to, you know, and this is a big shout out to the publishers, Red Dog. They, what they did with this book was just beautiful. I mean, I, I the delivery of this book, it feels like um, kind of like an event. You know, it, it feels the delivery of it in terms of the cover design and stuff. And here is something I wanted to share was that we talked about on the cover design of the book. Um, we had sort of like um, a base piece that we really liked and that was uh, the penguin classics version of dracula Mm -hmm. Mm. and you can immediately see the hallmarks there of the sort of the dark shambling figure and the red color scheme especially when i put it next Mm -hmm. to blackstoke and that was like a real key thing and the watchtower on the back on the blackstoke cover was something that i love creepy watchtowers they're so ace. You know when you see something high in the middle of nowhere, yeah. you're like, what are you looking yeah, at? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that kind of, I love that kind of stuff. It's, especially if they're abandoned, you know. And again, Norfolk Broads is full of this kind of stuff. But I love all that. And there was a game called Firewatch, um, which was just amazing. And it was a slow burn PlayStation game. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were um, a fire watchman. at um, You know, in one of those massive American forests mm-hmm. that has forest fires. And you just lived in one of those watchtowers and you watched around and you kept seeing things you couldn't explain while it was happening. And it went on over a period of weeks, you know, of me, like literally I was playing it like, this is probably one of those things that kept me awake at night because I was so jazzed about it, this story and how it was delivered to me. And you saw no other human being in the game. You just saw clues and evidence. And the more you explored, so you'd, you know, you'd do a sleep period, sleep cycle, and you'd get up in the morning in the game and go out that day and go to your checkpoints to see if everything was cool. And you'd find that something had been moved in the night. But you know, you know that no one is there. And mm. the music was incredible. And it was just one of the most fulfilling experiences of game I've ever known. And it really fit with the Blackstoke thing, especially the Watchtower sequences of being up there and looking out across stuff. And stuff is down there. You just can't see it. You know, I, I love all of that stuff. 
And someone, t- someone talks about, you know, I was asked this recently in a school thing, like, do you ever worry about copying? And I don't worry about copying because I think every single bit of art has been magpied to an extent by something else. I mean, what mm. are we if we're not influenced by the things around us? If you were going to try and, com- uh, and create um, a piece of art, or a pe- let's take a song, well, you wouldn't be able to use any kind of recognisable chord progression because they've all, in some way or other, been done before. So, um, and why are you doing it in that beat? Is it because you heard it from this, you know, <laughs> myriad of other songs that have it in that timing? You know, so we're all a product of what is around us. So I, I definitely don't worry about copying. Plagiarism is totally different because that's replication. But being influenced, I mean, I can't think of a greater tribute or homage than crediting someone as saying, I was really influenced by this. What are the subgenres that you love the most? Is it slasher? Is it ghost stories? Is it, you know, psychological? Or is it just everything? You know, what really gets you excited? It's really, I mean, um, I think the unknown is, is the one. Anything that's the unknown and whatever it turns out to be. I, I like, and I de- oh, spoiler alert possibly, but there's a particular rule that I like is not to be disappointed by an ending. I'm not saying you're going to be disappointed by the ending of Blackstoke, but when you get the explanation for what has been going on in these things, I like it to ring both true, but also to appeal still to that sense of possibility. I don't just want it to be the Scooby-Doo thing where it's, mm-hmm. oh, it was the, the, the accountant all along, you know, that kind <laughs> of thing, you know, and something very, very ordinary and normal. Um, if it's feasible, but still way out there that's cool by me but um you ask so good such good questions (laughs) like you're getting lost in them like in my own because it's making me think about because i've never thought about this stuff i just wrote the book that i wanted to write Mm -hmm. and and was lucky enough to find a home for it so i've never thought about this kind of stuff really well okay right so so for me when i read the book there was there was a couple of things that sort of sprang to mind there was first of all i sent you the message saying that the burbs was one thing that that sprung to mind just simply yeah. because it is obviously set in the suburbs it's horror elements or rather moments of unease but also humor and you know there's a, there's, a, there's a particular scene that happens involving uh, uh the first time when someone's setting up an electric fence that actually made me laugh out loud and i thought that that oh, cool. kind of so that really stuck out so that was one influence as you progress into the story and figure out what's actually happening and there's more of it that sort of reveals, there's one film in particular that it reminded me of. And I think because that film has a, a similarly shocking scene, it's a, it's, a, it's a very... I don't know if you've seen the uh, Kurt Russell Western Bone Tomahawk. Mm. Yes, yeah. I have, yeah. Yes, Good. so the yeah. bit, the... Yes. The, um, what do you call it? The, the yeah. Bi, um, bisection, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The, sort of comes out, you, you, you're watching it, and there's, you sort of, no, the, no, they're not going to show it. It's not going to happen. Mm. Is it what they call that it? Was, a wish, yeah. wishbone scene. Yeah. I'm kind of, you're yeah. kind of t- telling yourself, no, they're not going to do that. You know it's going to happen, but you keep saying to yourself, yeah. no, it's not. And that reminded me of the I love that film so much. Mm-hmm. That, that film is so great um, because it's all sorts of different things yeah. wrapped into one. Yeah, um, and this goes back to one of the very first things we talk about, about genre and whether it's a help or a hindrance. I don't think, you know, agents and publishers would, would prefer it, I think, if we stuck to certain genres. And it's been nice this week because I've had a number of messages 
from fellow authors saying, good on you for doing something that's not your usual thing because we feel like we mm. can't do it. Mm. You know, um, because our, we might lose our readership or whatever. And I'm not big enough at this point to have to worry about that. So I'm really glad I've done that now because if hopefully if I continue to grow, I can have both those readerships, you know, come with me. That would be great. But definitely Bone Tomahawk was amazing for that. Um, and, that and the shock of that, mm -hmm. that visceral shock of that scene, it was like nothing else. Um, much smaller scale in terms of the uh, the graphic qualities. But, you know, in, in Blair Witch, when um, Heather Donner, was it Heather, Heather Donner? Or they, they opened up that little little... It was like a little handkerchief and it had a lot of yeah. blood and organs mm -hmm. and stuff in it. And it was just the fact that that came out of nowhere. It was the, suddenly the most visceral thing you'd seen in the whole film. And you'd been taken to such a point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was amazing as well for that. I think it was because that's the point. And I think we're talking about the scene in the kitchen, are we here, Chris? Um, for, or, or to an extent. Because it's a bit of a, a bit of both. Because later on, uh, one of the characters is is in a prison like... Kurt Russell was, mm -hmm. but the the sort of the real graphic thing. One of the real graphic things happens in the kitchen, and that was definitely the bit where, holy smokes, this boat, this book is going there now, mm -hmm. you know, and that where a turn was definitely taken, and it had been it had been building up to it. There'd been a, a bad moment, you know, or a strong moment, but there's certainly a point in the book where, if you were to look at a graph of it, of moments that went whoa. I definitely picked them so that there's like early doors, there was one, and then maybe two, and then three, and then four was a big one, and then oh my god, that's <laughs> it, and that that was deliberately done like that mm -hmm. because uh, so that because I want people to feel compelled to read it as well. I always do short chapters as well because that I, I like that. I always I, I want to be one of those writers, you know. Everyone says um, one of the you know it's been said like of me many times, like oh you just want to be airport writer. Well, yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah, of course I am. You know, I want to be the guy you read by the poolside on holiday. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I if you picking my, I'd love to be in airport W H Smiths and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Just give me the chance, you know. So um, that is no insult to me. That is exactly what I'd like to be because I only ever want to entertain. But there's there's ways you can entertain that. Um, you can, you know, I, I'm trying to improve that. I'm trying to get better at the craft of entertainment is something I'm trying to improve at all the time. You mentioned before about like horror films and, and the, like comedy is absolutely about the timing. It's about the, the, the tension and when he knows to sort of pull the trigger, when not to, and uh, say what, what really goes in your favour with the, the, the book is exactly that, is the pacing, is that, that you kind of, you know, at the beginning you're sort of seeing different sort of, perspectives and the different sides of this kind of world that you've created and then you just like <laughs> throw it in a blender <laughs> and then <laughs> you've got I do, I, this, and this goes back to what we we're talking about of like i like it when characters are under duress mm -hmm. i like to build up a character to see what they're like and and with this i mean this is one of the most ambitious casts i've ever had i think because there's we we bounce between perspectives multiple times i mean even the main sort of who you would class as possibly the main character. We only have three scenes with them before it all things mm -hmm. go mad, you know? And, and so you've got to pack a lot of development in that. Not really development, but you've got to make sure that the audience is invested in them. You have to make sure of that. And if they're not, you know, they're not. And, and I fully recognise that maybe one or two characters in the process of brevity here might, uh, might have been uh, underserved by that. There are certainly a couple of scenes which now... I look back and I'd like to have done differently. Mm -hmm. A couple of characters I'd like to have done the odd 
different thing with, certainly. Um, but the thing is that there are books and books and books out there about how to write a novel and how to write a horror novel and how to do this and how to do that. And none of them are specific to actually getting it 100% right. And the only, you don't get, when you decide that you're going to be, write a novel, you don't get a manual. You don't, you just don't get one. And you have to find a way that works for you, but you also have to learn on the job. So uh, when you say to me, Chris, like these points of humor were timed well or whatever, you. <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea. It's like in talks, you know, when someone says to me, like, you know, I saw this. You were very clever when you put this in mm. there, and you know, it was harking back to earlier. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell I've you got that. no idea. Absolutely no. Yeah, of course I did. Yes. Oh, no. Yeah. The usual answer is, well, I'm glad you noticed that. So you weren't explicitly aware of these that kind of the structure of the. Were you aware of the rules of horror, as in, like you know, described in? like scream you know that you've got a certain character yeah. you've got to do this you've got to do that you've got to pay off that well uh, to an extent yeah definitely to an extent uh, but i think because because we all like movies and we all like books and whatever whatever it is we enjoy we're all students of that and we all take it on as well and i try to explain this to the children i see in schools as well even if you're just playing um bubble witch saga on your phone it's still there's still a sort of a microcosm of a story there with this bubble witch mm -hmm. who's trying to get something done and we're all being you know adverts 30 second adverts puppy running down the stairs with a bog roll that kind of stuff mm -hmm. we're all being we're all students of stories we're all inhaling stories at such a rate that we don't even know we're doing it um even little jingles on the radio when you're in the car everything is a story and we're taught about that sense of timing for a beginning middle and end and it just it resonates with us whether we like it or not it's a bit like when you're framing a photograph and the rule of thirds works for the human eye it's an innate thing that we don't necessarily you know well just by being alive we're being taught i think um, so every time you're watching a film, you're being taught more how that works. Um, and so it was very much a case of just going naturally with this. I didn't have any, again, no plan, no plot, no nothing like that. I just knew about the halfway mark. It had to go seriously belly up. And I knew who I wanted it to go belly up for by that point. Um, who was going to be the focus for the the turn. Um, but the no, but I think humour is so important in these things as well because it gives the audience a break. Mm -hmm. And I like reading humour. I like re I like to read it, and I think you can have humour in everything because it's a very British thing as well, isn't yeah. it? You know, treating bad things with humour or finding mm -hmm. macabre delight in when things are going very, very badly. Um, no, there is honestly... I, I'm looking around my office right now. I can't find a single bit of planning material that went into Blackstoke. I just can't, because the one doesn't exist. Um, what I might... What, no, what I definitely did do was I write in Scrivener, um, which is a programme which... Um, you can make every chapter a scene and you can just move it up and down. And I just, I, I, when it got to the nitty gritty and I was losing track of where everybody was, because they were all in different directions, I did, I got all the chapters out, however many chapters I had left. I just labelled them, someone's here, someone's here, someone's here, someone's here. And then I knew, ah, well, we've got to make sure that those tie together, those tie together. But that's as far as it was. Thematically, there was nothing there. It was just how it, how it fell. Timing-wise, again, just how it fell. A lot of it was uh, honed afterwards, though. You know, like the, the sharpness of certain dialogue. The, um, that first chapter was double in length. 
um, when I originally submitted it, really chopped that up because he sounded like such a morose weirdo. <laughs> I just thought, no one's going to want to follow this weirdo. Because um, he's, he's an atypical sort of protagonist as well, Peter West, mm-hmm. in this. He's the... I don't. I don't think he's the main character because something I've worked out that I like to do, and I've only worked out in the last couple of books, is I like to swap main character halfway through when someone else proves their immediate worth and qualities. So we swap in a way in this book, which I really, really like, mm-hmm. because mainly because we built this character. And I started to think, no, she's the best. She's, oh, spoiler. (laughs) Yeah, she's absolutely brilliant. And I want more of her and Mm -hmm. she should really carry this. And it made thematic sense. Um, If we go into spoiler territory, if we could. Mm -hmm. Um, If we're talking about a group that are kidnapping women to create an underground harem, which is essentially what they're trying to do, Mm -hmm. because their mother has deceased because they procreated with her too much. It's lovely, isn't it? Charming stuff. <laughs> 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 Mom is so proud. Um, they, I love the idea that the only survivors are women. Mm-hmm. They totally turn the tables. Mm-hmm. Uh, the women and the innocent um, and the, the children. And that's it. I, I, I absolutely love that idea. And it was, it was, I think each of the women get their hero moment as they overcome this obstacle. It was very conscious for me to do that. One, I absolutely loved writing. The, the bit with the, in the sort of the meat store. Mm-hmm. I just love that. When I, that was just, the, that was one of those occasions where, oh my word, the words are coming out and I can't catch them quick enough. Yeah. And it was always, yeah, it was always about, I, I really wanted the end to be the, the way it was with the, three women and the babies in a wheelbarrow and a great big dog. That's what I want. Sorry, Matt. Matt, <laughs> <No>. spoiler. <laughs> but that's all, all I really wanted because I think it's a striking image for a start. And I think it's that, I don't know. I never set out to make a statement with anything I write. And if you think that I'm, I'm trying to, if it ever comes across like I've tried to go for a great big societal message, I absolutely haven't. <laughs> Matt. <laughs> but because uh, I've not, I've just set out to entertain uh, but to try to do it in the right way. Mm-hmm. So um, I think at this point in time, I think it's probably worked out very well, you know, in a societal sense, mm-hmm. that you've got this band of kick-ass women that have done this in the end. And quite right too. So I enjoy it. Hi, I'm Rob. I'm Simon. And I'm James. We want to talk about those movies. Those supposedly bad movies. Those movies that bombed. To see if they weren't that bad after all. Join us every other Tuesday on the For Your Reconsideration podcast, part of the Pod Dojo Podcast Network. You can catch us on iTunes, Spotify, and all your usual podcast apps. And it won't cost you a solitary bean, mate. <laughs> it's like it's free. <laughs> it's just like it's free. <laughs> What's next? You, I know that you've 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 written the the sequel to. Oh, Far From the Tree, yeah. So you've written that. That's that. Yeah, I've that's written. Done. Um, yeah. So that's that's obviously that's done, are you, are yeah. you sort of going through various drafts at the moment, or is that being sort of kind of submitted? No, it's uh, it's at a point where um, I can show you it actually because it's right here. Um, it's at a point where it's all printed out. So my process would be one uh, first draft all gets printed out like that. Ta-da! Mm-hmm. So that's two hundred sides of um, A4. It's about eighty thousand words. And then um, I will scroll all over it. 
and that's my second draft where I make notes all over it. Third draft is typing that all up and then that gets handed in. However, with this one, there are things like, let's just, <laughs> it just says epilogue. <laughs> like, okay, well, need to add something there. So uh, it's, in a good, it's in a good place. It'll be out later this year. Um, that's the most ambitious thing I've ever tried to write in my whole life, that, because um, I feel um, the pressure of follow-up because the first one's done well. So I feel like I need to really make sure this lands. But also it's a contracted trilogy. So um, I know that I've got to set up the third one while this being a really good standalone adventure. Not adventure, sorry. It's, it's Because it's got, what I've realised as well, it's got horrible moments as well. Um, and I didn't realise at the time, but Far From The Tree has some really visceral, horrible moments as well. So there are, there is a theme that I didn't realise in the books of my most recent output. There is a theme. It's weird, but I'm really enjoying it. And, you know, mercifully, people say I'm improving as well. So that's good. That's a good thing. And if this is getting the best out of me, it's the better for my career and the longer I can do this. Because I'm, I'm under no illusions. This might blow up. You know, it might blow up in my face, this. And I'll go back on the van or get back into court or whatever. But so it's like, I definitely feel the pressure to keep going while it's here. Make hay while the sun shines. Mm, yeah. Is that it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I wondered um, whether you think you'll ever either revisit the screenplays that you've written over over how many decades, or or, um, <laughs> or perhaps think about you know adapting your stories to screenplays, or just write original screenplays. What, I mean, is that is that a, a lane that you see yourself going down? Definitely, um, but it would be a, a bit like starting from scratch where I am at the moment. So if I was to try and start writing um, a, a spec script just to try and sell, um, I know that I wouldn't be paid mm. for that in the meantime. And I know with yourself, Matthew, you know, um, your script writing work, you know, um, you have to take a punt on it, don't you? And hope that you're going to be bought in the future. And that's exactly the same thing. And with this being the job... I can't take that time out at the moment to just devote to doing that. If I got a bumper contract which let me write one, lets me write one book a year, then yeah, I will leave that in hundred um, percent. But at the moment, that's not there. You know, there are irons in the fire, but we're not there yet. Because I'd like to slow down at the moment. I mean, I've got five books out this year. I, I I'd like to slow down <laughs> because. I'm tired. I have to be honest, I am tired. And it's been like this for maybe two years. And I get maybe four hours of sleep a night, something like that. And um, it's just... uh, But I'm devoted to making this work. So if it means that for a while we have to do five books a year, we have to do five books a year. And then... But definitely I'd love to go to film. I don't think there's a market for sort of rather aged JCVD fighting dinosaurs. (laughs) Maybe there is. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe there is. Honestly, it was... It was... It was so old ago I wrote this screenplay that it was called Jurassic Park 3 because it was before Jurassic Park 3 mm. came out. And it was, yeah, it was um, Van Damme did a, a con air and protected his wife on the San Diego subway. And um, I didn't do it! And um, was uh, sentenced to life imprisonment on San Diego's, um, you know, death row penitentiary, which is Jurassic... They didn't know what to do with the dinosaurs, so we just send our death row inmates to them. And a band of, you know, the only ones that had survived were the ones who were. <laughs> and he strapped, he beat up a raptor and took its claws off and strapped his claws to, wow. his, its claws to his hands. 
Yeah, and um, uh, with beer bottles. And um, and then I saw yeah. Liam do it in the grey, and I was like, no, this is all my idea. <laughs> but no, so I don't think there's any market for that. Um, I don't think, there's, uh, truthfully, these are some of the most garbage screenplays you will ever see in your life. I mean, I think I've saved them all to do as, you know, if... If I ever have a good, you know, a big filmy moment in my life or anything like that, so you can just see how far things have changed. Because, like, literally, and and they were from a place, a really teen yeah. place as well. You know, um, what we, me and my brother used to go, is it a teen thing? You know, like, uh, I hate my dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, is it like that? Yeah, it's like that. Yeah, it's like that. So, like, the last line of one of the screenplays I'd written was, and Sean never trusted another woman until the day he died. <laughs> you know, like, are you all right, Rob? Is there anything you want to talk about? You know, so they're, they're truly terrible. Um, the only thing that I would ever like to revisit and resurrect is mm. the Bond script that I did. But you just can't touch that property. Um, and I have emailed the people who have the James Bond uh, novel rights to mm-hmm. put my hat in the ring and say, look, I, just not now, but remember one day, if I ever make something serious of myself, please consider me for this gig to write Bond. And <sighs> they never replied. So <laughs> Typical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was only three or four weeks ago, but yet. No, no, but it's seriously, that, is a, that would be, a, a, for me, who mm. I am, that would be an absolute dream job, that one. The dream job to write that. So that's, yeah, that's definitely something I'd like to do. And I think, like, I used to get shy of saying things like that, but what's the point in being shy about it? Like, yeah, would you like to write the next James Bond novelization? Yes, I would. Yes, I would. I'm going to say it now. Yes, I would. And, I, you know, it's not shy. I know that at the minute Anthony Horowitz has got it. Does Anthony Horowitz know who, who he would be passing it on to if I was giving it? No, <laughs> he does not know. But one day he might. So, you know, I'd love to do it. Ping, here comes the email, and it's from Hotshot movie producer Derek Smallberries, who says, (laughs) 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 Who's optioned. He's he's getting left on red, regardless. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He's decided, I'm going to option. Blackstoke, and he says, "Oh, you know, this is this is perfect. This is perfect material for us. We want you to write the screenplay, but we want you to write up a short list of directors or other kind of behind the scene kind of you know talent, as well as you know get your short list of of, of cast of, of characters. So where do you start?" Um, I've got three, actually. I think so. We do have a short list for you, Derek Smallbeans, or whatever your name is. <laughs> Um, so not a good start to the uh, meeting. So, um, Lee Wan L, mm. straight off. Um, also, I'm telling uh, slight temptation with Edgar Wright. Mm. Slight temptation. But um, the real one I think I'd want is Greg McLean, who did um, Wolf Creek and Rogue. Mm. Wolf Creek was absolutely terrifying. Yeah. And I think he would do wonders with this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Greg McLean, that's who we're going for. Top pick, Derek. Yeah. Go get him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll get him on speed dial right now. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you never know. Cast. Fletcher Adams, the MP, I think would be brilliantly served by Toby Stevens. 
I think that Peter West, the the sort of the main dude character, mm-hmm. could be mm. my old mate Warren Brown. I think. Mm. Um, and uh, sorry, that is such a, a a douchey way of saying. He narrated the Far from the Tree book. Sorry, that's it's you know. An epitism, and he, he's he's telephoned me one time, so <laughs> we're all, we're obviously old friends. <laughs> uh, Grace Mulligan uh, is. Uh Saoirse Ronan. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. You know, obviously we're aiming high here. Yeah. Really. Well, yeah. <laughs> Derek Fast John. Um, is, uh, he's yeah, he's going, going off the big berries. The yeah. He's, yeah, he's got to go for it. He's got to go for it. <laughs> he's got to go for it. Quint Fenchurch and Wendy Fenchurch are quite clearly, if we've not noticed, modelled on the Futtermans from the Gremlin series. <laughs> You know, <laughs> what's outside, Murray? <laughs> yeah. Gremlins, WWII. Yeah, this is clearly them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we need to, I think, possibly resurrect them for the role. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know whether they're perished, but um, that's. <laughs> and Pam, oh, I don't know, Soran Jones for Pam, I think. Mm. And uh, I don't know any sort of teen actors. For the children of the piece, possibly. Um, but uh, David and Christian, I think... I don't know, because I actually saw them. I never see the characters in my head, but I actually saw those two. I think... <laughs> Part of me thinks <laughs> in my head, it's got a, a look of boy, Boyd from Nathan's... Rob, we're sorry about... Uh, it's 20 uh, years ago. They <laughs> ate that union night, didn't we? When, uh, yeah, sorry. I'm sure... <laughs> Yeah, we did. We saw him. Yeah, obviously, it took him about eight seconds to get his kit off. You know, <laughs> just immediately. This is why I'm here. Um, although, yeah, quite keen for Alan Fletcher to play Fletcher Adams. <laughs> no, I think he would also be very good. Joyce. Oh, who's? Um, don't know. There are a couple of people who I don't want to be in it, but I'm not going to say that. Wow, yeah. But um, it's only because I was an extra once. I know you've done some extra work as well, Matt. Quite a lot, yeah. Um, but there was a couple of. Actors who left a sour yeah. taste in that. <laughs> I, I wouldn't like to be involved. The Black Stoke, Black yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Derek, do not approach these people <laughs> big, under any circumstances, Derek. You know, what kind of weirdo, honestly? <laughs> Small-scale indie author says he will not work with certain <laughs> elite, elite British actors. <laughs> But you've got to have fun with it. So, yeah, I think I think we've got a good cast there. Yeah. But I've deliberately not cast any of the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the baddies, so to speak. Okay. Right. Oh, a cast of unknowns, I think, would, would work really well. I think that would help, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that would definitely help, yeah. yeah. Definitely help. Just to end on, I suppose, everyone wants to hear when the successful author being asked, what advice do you have for budding writers in every in all and every genre you know or medium whether it's screenplays or novels you know what advice would you give a hundred percent do it that's it do it don't uh, you can have the best idea in the world and i get approached by people who tell me they've got the best idea in the world very very regularly but it's all in their head as in, it's just, they've never decided to put pen to paper. Now, whatever reason that you haven't put pen to paper, just ignore it. Get over it. Do it. 
Do it. Once you've done it, it's an achievement that can never be taken away, whether it gets published or not. Writing a novel is a monstrous achievement. Writing anything of any substance and length is a monstrous achievement, and you should be so proud of yourself that you've done it. And revel in that achievement, that you did it. You actually did that. You know, there's that, there's that expression, we've all got unfinished novels in our drawers somewhere. Finish it. Doesn't matter how it looks, because what you can do with a novel that's, that's finished is tart it up. You can make it better. You can improve it. You cannot improve something that isn't there. So you can't make a blank page any better than it already is. So um, I would. Uh, once you've done that, um, have fun. You know, um, always make sure that you're right. You're, that whatever it is that you're writing, you enjoy it because if you enjoy it, your writing shines because of it. Your writing sparkles. You can tell when an author doesn't want to do this anymore. And I've been at a bar with a very famous author who told me very, in no uncertain terms, in very, very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, colourful terms, that he hates the series he's working on, but it makes him a huge mm -hmm. amount of money every year. And he hates it. And you can tell, you can tell he hates it. So enjoy it because your writing will sparkle because of it. So ignore all convention. Don't sit there and try and write something that you think will sell. Because by the time you've done that, the zeitgeist will have changed again. You know, zeitgeisty things are so, so lucky. You know, like um, we talk a lot in the industry in the moment about the girl on a, you know, the girl on a swing or the girl on a train or mm. the girl who did this or the girl blah, blah, blah. And that was a, f a phase that sold millions of books. But if you sit down now and write the girl who book, it'll have gone. They're gone. So write what you want to write. If the if it happens to be on trend when it happens, that's great. But at least because you enjoyed it, it will be a damn good book by the time you get there. And ignore the haters. Make your haters just your best friends. In terms of like, I actively like. I know the names of some of my worst reviewers just because I love them so much now, and I I look forward to their input whenever I get a new book out. So use every single one of those as fire. Turn your negatives into positives and never, ever, ever give up. You're in charge of your destiny. And this is a, a message that, that applies to not just writing, I think. Because I can't sit here and tell you how to write. I found a way that I can write. And I can definitely give you tips on things you can try. But I can't, what works for you won't work for me and vice versa. You just gotta sit down and do it and find out how it works for you. But Whatever it is in life, you are going to find people who tell you you can't do it for whatever reason, whether it's geography, whether it's background, whether it's, I don't know. There's all sorts of reasons why we're told we can't be or do certain things. Ignore them. If you want to do it, you do it anyway. Just do it anyway. And we know, you know, I say this in school sometimes and you always get someone go like, oh, what about smash the window, sir? I really want to do that. Like, that's not really what we're, you know, that's not the direction we're going in here, little Jimmy. Um... Little Derek Smallweener or whatever your name is. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Just there, were, there are people in life who tell you you can't. Ignore them. Do it anyway. And keep fighting. Keep mm. the heart. Keep believing in yourself. Toot your own horn. Believe in yourself. And don't ever give up.